0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula-exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. I think we can all agree 2020 has been a heck of a year. Hopefully the rest of the century will go smoother, but if it doesn't, how will we survive it? Nuclear Weapons, Viruses, Artificial Intelligence, Technological Singularities, Asteroid Impacts, Earthquakes, supervolcanoes, 3D Printing, Automated Factories, Grey Goo, Genetic Engineering, Unemployment, Virtual Reality, Deforestation, Desertification, Changing Climates, Invasive Species, Antibiotic Resistant Super Bacteria, Ultra Addictive Designer Drugs, Solar Storms and flares, Designer Babies, and Uplifted Lions and Tigers and Bears. Oh my, the future is going to be quite a challenge. Welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, and I am your aforementioned host, Isaac Arthur. In general I tend to be known for my optimism about humanity's future, but a point I always feel obliged to bring up when accused of being optimistic is that it's not optimism that arises from being unable to see all our problems, but from being able to see a lot of the potential solutions too, and that we can meet and overcome these challenges. We have a lot of challenges coming up in the next century, many of which could cripple or even obliterate us, and what we're going to do today is go through those, ask how we can avoid the pitfalls, and how we can mitigate the damage or recover if we still trip into one of those potentially cataclysmic scenarios. Of course normally the one thing guaranteed about surviving the next century is that you, personally, will not. So, we tend to mean our descendants, and as such, we'll put a special focus today on genetic engineering of humans and children. However, it is also possible you and I might still be alive and kicking in the year 2121 from life extension technology, and that technology offers both an obvious benefit and many challenges we've looked at before in our episodes on life extension, but there is likely to be many we probably can't foresee. It is generally true that if you can foresee a problem, you can avoid it, or at least handle it better. There are some exceptions, but by and large, forewarned is forearmed, and that's what we're doing in today's episode. However, what often gets us is what seems obvious in hindsight, but was simply not predictable in advance, what is often called a black swan event. There are tons of examples of these, but unforeseen uses and consequences of new technology tends to provide the most common examples. We could and did predict the internet, but we could not have predicted social media and the exorbitant list of uses it has come to fulfill, even though they seem obvious now. We foresaw folks using future internet to archive and pull data like from a library, sending personal messages and files back and forth and getting their news from it, but smartphones, mobile app games, selfies, online commerce, or people walking in front of cars while texting just weren't what was in mind when cell phones were invented. That seems obvious in hindsight, but there was simply no way anyone could have predicted the myriad uses the cell phone has come to give us. We examined this notion more deeply back in our Black Swan Events episode. We also looked at something called an Outside Context Problem, or OCP, which is something that an individual or civilization simply couldn't even have conceived of because an OCP arrives unexpectedly and is, by definition, something so far removed from what that individual or civilization knows and understands, is something so far removed from everyday life, that there is simply no possible way for anyone to come close to considering it as a possibility. As an example, most of us are aware of the concept of flying saucer landing, so we really can't consider the arrival of aliens as an OCP, but if, for example, the million or so mountains on Earth were to suddenly start yawning and stretching and opening huge pairs of eyes to start a new day in some mountainous civilization, uh, moving around the planet without even noticing humans that they keep crushing underfoot, uh, this would be an OCP. We have absolutely no reason to believe or expect the mountains on our planet to be living, thinking means, and would be absolutely blown away should such a bizarre thing happen. Now To clarify, an OCP is not just something out of the box and unpredictable, like going to sip a cup of coffee and have the cup bite you. OCPs are supposed to be civilization-wrecking events, and the implication tends to be that the shocking thing that did it was something in contradiction to your civilization's worldview. So for instance both special relativity and quantum mechanics were OCPs, the notion that space and time are connected and malleable, and that at the most basic level of matter and energy there's a randomness and uncertainty, did give some major existential crisis to scientists and philosophers, but it didn't really impact civilization much. Alternatively, if you live on a small island, and your whole worldview is connected to the idea that you're a chosen people made by a deity to live on this lone paradise island in an infinite sea, and to leave the island brings death, Having folks arrive on a giant ocean-going vessel and say hello one afternoon is going to obliterate that worldview and fast. Many of the things we'll be looking at today are OCPs, or would have been if the concept had gone from brand new to fully developed overnight, but not so now. It is typical for end-of-the-year videos, articles, essays, and so on to make predictions about the future, but that's what we do every week here on the show, so I figured we should emphasize instead how unpredictable the future is. We can only predict when we know what all the variables are. For instance, I might say that in the next decade we'll see an uptick in the use of solar power. But if tomorrow someone figured out how to make a very easy to build fusion reactor that had far fewer maintenance costs per kilowatt hour than in the existing power source, solar power would be rendered into a niche market. Because with cheap enough energy, you can even suck CO2 and water up and turn them into carbon neutral gasoline to run your larger portable devices. At that point solar is limited to very low draw-power electronic devices like calculators, or fairly remote locations, where it's a bigger pain to run power lines to devices than erect some solar powers. Indeed, given that fusion probably lets you run a lot of atom smashers or neutron bombardment on the cheap, you might see a big uptick in devices using radioisotope thermal generators. On the flip side, if someone came out tomorrow with a solar panel roofing tile that was competitive in cost of production, installation, and maintenance with normal roofing options especially if that came in tandem with better batteries, then suddenly the future is a world where almost every roof is covered in them and the solar roofing market sees a sudden boom, and a lot of paint and house siding options alter around nearly every roof being black. What we tend to do on this show is ask what the consequences of a given new piece of technology would be and try to go beyond just the obvious ones. Again, forewarned is forearmed, and many of the threats facing us like asteroid impacts or supervolcanoes are statistically improbable in the next century or two, even more unlikely to be of a magnitude that wiped us out beyond our rebuilding, and are subject to management with higher technology. Of course that's assuming those models are reasonably correct. When we go out in space, no terrestrial danger will threaten extinction anymore and developing technology to do that comes hand in hand with improved technologies that are better from both an ecological and economic perspective, and you can see several episodes like Climate Change Mitigation, Power Satellites, or Asteroid Defense for some examples of that. Fundamentally, threats to humanity in the future are those of our own making, from other humans, or the machines we create. As another example, I mentioned 3D printing near the beginning in our long list of potential cataclysms, And that's usually because a very advanced 3D printer, something more akin in speed and versatility to a Star Trek replicator than modern 3D printers, can potentially let any lunatic make a doomsday device in their basement. We examine both some opportunities and some of the challenges in making anything like that in our episodes The Santa Claus Machine and Self-Replicating Machines, such as being wiped out by Grey Goo, a host of tiny self-replicating machines that disassemble everything, including people and the ground they're standing on, to make more of themselves. However, while that's a potential cataclysm for civilization, I would be more worried about the preemptive strike against that of a surveillance state monitoring for improper usage of such a technology, or even signs of ownership. A face with a challenge to our civilization's survival, or an apparent one, we do tend to react and those reactions are not always the ones we might prefer. Possibly the biggest potential threat or challenge along these lines we will see in this next century will be genetic engineering and eugenics. Consider if gene therapy improved and we could suddenly start making designer babies, ones who could grow up smarter and healthier than the normal average and with the desired physical characteristics the parents selected. It's possible this would be banned and have a massive black market enterprise for doing it, and the response to that might be random DNA tests on kids to see if they had been altered, potentially with severe punishments for them or their parents. Such sanctions might still not be enough in the long term to avoid those traits getting into the gene pool, they might be forcibly sterilized or even killed. We have seen the dire scenarios for that in science fiction almost as often as we have seen the dire consequences of genetic engineering. But let us consider a slow and more moderate response, more akin to what we have often seen in recent decades to disruptive technologies. Parents by nature want the best for their child. And if their resources permit, they generally will not hesitate to go to extreme efforts to improve their offspring's future. We already do this a lot, but most of the ways for doing it are entirely embedded into our culture. So we don't accuse parents of cheating or seeking advantage for sending their kids to private schools, hiring a tutor, or buying them every widget that alleges to improve learning or health in some fashion. It would never even cross our minds to accuse someone of cheating for spending lots of time with their kid teaching academics, sports, social skills, or ethics to them. We also aren't likely to object to any type of gene therapy or other medical procedure that helps with a handicap if a child has lost an arm, been born blind or with diabetes, or so on. I can't see many of our current civilizations trying to ban anything which helped with that. However, it is debatable what is a handicap and it's also a dubious ethical and legal idea that someone can fix a deficit but not seek an improvement. I should note personally that I have no ethical issue in and of itself whether you're taking a pill or giving one to their child that suddenly makes them smarter or stronger or similar, at least if it is all inside the existing human template. My only issues are the potential side effects and consequences. Having a kid as smart as Einstein who could also get a job as a star athlete or supermodel does not harm anyone else except in very abstract ways of denying an opportunity to another, who got that opportunity by semi-random genetic luck anyway Or by placing parents or cultures under the pressure of having to do the same. Outside the human template is another story and more iffy, however as is often the case with the ethics of any technology, we should ask if we already have parallel cases in our culture. So it's generally accepted that at a subconscious level we tend to engage in mate selection for good offspring, and that many of the traits that are considered attractive, especially cross-culturally, are those associated with that goal. So we already seek for better genetics, and I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between mate selection with that goal and genetic engineering besides the latter being more effective. Ethically, there is no difference between going to some witch doctor for a love potion that you believe will work and going to a lab for a drug that actually does work, except that the former probably does not work and the latter does. You thought it worked when you made the decision to acquire and use it. We'll talk more about designer drugs in a bit, but it's a parallel to designer babies ethically, insofar as genetic science is presumably seeking the same goal as mate selection, except it is more effective and definitely a conscious decision. Which mate selection might be too, and we have no law banning two people from seeking to have children together, specifically because they think they have good genes to mix, indeed that is the primary and conscious motivation at things like sperm banks. Ethically, objecting to someone else advantaging their child at no direct consequence to you is essentially the same as complaining that they sent them to the best school or took time off from work and sacrificed luxuries to focus on their kid's education. One can raise legitimate worries about opportunities being denied to other folks, but that can only go so far. My wife and I were both homeschoolers with strong backgrounds in educating folks, so unsurprisingly we are planning to homeschool our own children, if we have any and circumstances permit. There's much to be said about egalitarianism, but if someone were to suggest to me that it was unfair that we do so, they'd probably get commentary out of me using many words, tones, and phrases I've tried to eliminate from my lexicon after leaving the military. That which improves a person is arguably an exception, though, because someone in better mental or physical health, so long as they've been given a good ethical base and aren't prone to narcissism, is benefiting society, too. If a culture suddenly has access to some techniques that result in many children having that opportunity, they probably are going to soon have both the ability and inclination to spread that around. I never like making blanket comments, but I've also never noticed a tendency of the intelligent and educated to hoard knowledge, quite to the contrary it tends to fairly often result in an obsession for increasing that knowledge and spreading it around. Same, it is pretty normal for athletes to turn into coaches, because they want to share their love for the game with others and believe sports are good for the body and soul. But all that said, we obviously want to be careful and probably fairly gradual about things like genetic engineering of humans, and I'd imagine that is the inevitable outcome anyway, just because society will tend to naturally put roadblocks in the way of developing it to make sure at a minimum that it is heavily studied for problems and side effects, while at the same time the legal and moral issues of trying to tell people they cannot do it, particularly if other people are, should result in the gradual approach. Remember, it only takes one country saying yes, we're going to allow this, and then other countries either have to force them to ban it, decrease their own bans, or have to take some fairly difficult measures to avoid gradual spillover. One caveat though is that you can make a good case that any alterations to a human that aren't dealing with some major health issue should not be allowed in favor of them doing it as an adult. And the reality is that while it's harder to change DNA in a trillion cells of a baby or an adult than in one embryo, That sort of repetitive action is exactly what we would be aiming to handle with something like a tailored retrovirus or self-replicating medical nanobot. I could see laws banning messing with an embryo, but anything you would apply to a child in the womb or toddling around could be done to an adult too, so you can make a case for waiting for that until they're an adult. However, I can see a culture where adult genetic alteration was becoming normal and was not producing major crazy side effects like a civilization of selfish supermen that would long keep that from their kids, as they'd probably come to view it as something akin to refusing to let a kid read a book or exercise until they were an adult. So I'm quite sure we will see a future, and arguably already are in it, where we see science and technology applied to enhancing the human. Definitely a source of concern and a thing to watch warily for problems, but also worth the reminder that our only examples of genetically engineered supervillains are in fiction, and that making folks in great mental and physical condition has been our goal for a long time. So assuming that too much of a good thing would be bad, or the specific means of doing it, with a drug or retrovirus for instance, is bad, doesn't seem a strong argument. Of course too much of a good thing has been a constant worry where technology is concerned, and not without justification, even it is often a bit misaimed or exaggerated. Designer drugs and virtual reality both raise that concern. Drugs, in the context of recreationally taking narcotics, is obviously always an ethically tricky topic because it's specifically about too much of a good thing, a flawed source of that good thing, or side effects, not any specific one of them. Obviously opinions vary about them and I tend to be of two minds on it myself, but there's clearly a middle ground. Even the most ardent folks against them aren't likely to argue that coffee or chocolate should be banned. While even those who favor legalizing everything usually don't think taking most of them is an entirely safe or great idea, and would tend to make exceptions for anything that sends folks into homicidal or delusional rages, or so wildly addictive that being exposed to it even once involuntarily makes you a lifelong addict willing to do anything to get that next fix. Problem is, you probably could design something, a lone drug or cocktail that did exactly that, It might not even have any negative consequences, akin to the spice melange of the Dune franchise, which is mostly problematic in that it has a limited supply, but otherwise extends life and good health, though in large doses causes prophetic foresight and turning into a space-time-40 mutant. For the most part, it takes huge research groups, giant budgets, and large sanctioned trials to develop a new drug. So we generally only see it from major pharmaceutical companies that are watchdogged and not encouraged to try to come up with something that makes heroin, cocaine, or LSD look mild. But I would guess that as our knowledge of chemistry, biological computer modeling, and neuroscience improve in this next century, that will get easier to do and we probably will have folks develop various superdrugs. If you got something that causes massive euphoria that's as cheap as dirt and virtually impossible to prevent the spread of how to fabricate it at home from easily obtained materials then you've probably got yourself a massive problem, especially if it has no major side effects causing health issues or criminal behavior. The same applies to virtual reality, if you can live in whatever realm your mind can imagine and a programmer can make, a civilization is faced with the issue of how to keep folks from spending all their time in one. That's probably not made even a little bit easier if you're unemployed because robots and genetically enhanced youngsters are flooding the production chains. On the one hand they probably represent no threat to civilization, particularly considering they are suffering from a lot of idle time because overall productivity has skyrocketed, so a big chunk of your population sitting on a couch in a drug or VR induced bliss represents only an existential threat. It is not very likely to get everyone, and those it doesn't get are going to be very resistant to the temptation as time goes on and multiple generations grow up in doctrine to loathe it, rightly or wrongly. Also, while we will probably get better at hacking our brain's pleasure centers, this same effort is likely to produce powerful treatments for addictive behaviors too. This is that big one that really threatens civilization in the next century though, not just being replaced by automation but an ever-growing feeling of not being useful to a society while having so many ways to live outside it and maybe happier. A prosperous society will generally seek to help folks feel useful and to survive if or until they can be, but how you do that is clearly pretty tricky as history has shown us. I would also worry about good intentions and subconscious bad ones a lot, it's very easy for me to imagine that the folks most resistant to the lure of a narcotic or VR inspired euphoria are the ones who are already addicted to something else in this life, like the game of life itself, and might subconsciously be very glad to engage in policies that eliminate competition. An awful lot of competitive and predatory of folks with a lot of money and power is related to them essentially being addicted to that particular game of life. They play it to win, as they see it, and it's the game itself they enjoy playing. So we can often show them real-world consequences to get them to ameliorate that behavior, which is probably a lot harder if they can turn around and just say, hey, my labor and taxes are personally paying for thousands of folks to sit at home taking euphoria drugs and being as kings in virtual reality, which is a lot harder to rebut than if the average person is barely eking out an existence half-starved in some dilapidated shack. I don't think the big threat of a highly-automated post-scarcity civilization is that everyone turns inward into hedonism so much as society starts shrugging at how many people do, partially because they wish them well and partially because they wish them out of the way. Of course we might get pushed out of the way ourselves, we often worry about some super-intelligent machine doing the trick, or super-intelligent genetically engineered people or even uplifted animals akin to the apes from the Planet of the Apes franchise. That superintelligent machine is more of a concern, whether it aims to wipe us out or simply decides to keep us as pets, and is what we usually call a Technological Singularity. Now a Technological Singularity can have a few different meanings depending on who's defining it. The self-learning machine able to improve itself and do it over and over, faster and faster, is probably the most common usage these days, but also not too realistic. We examine that in detail in our Technological Singularity episode, but in short summary, as a near-term threat, humans have been trying to make a smarter human for centuries, and teaming up to do it, with limited success. Assuming a machine we made, and made just a bit smarter than us, could turn around the next day and make what even smarter is stretching plausibility a bit. Assuming it could do that while its creators looked on blindly is even more of a stretch. There are experts on the topic who tend to be the sort of folks who have watched or read a lot of fiction about runaway machine intelligences. It is possible, and over a long enough time we will presumably get far smarter artificial intelligences that are superhuman, but it's more likely we would have a gradual improvement with many such machine intelligences and many other parallel ones like genetically or cybernetically enhanced humans too. So ever smarter machines, probably, but a single runaway event, it versus everyone else and unbeatable, that I would tend to doubt but the presence of any machine or person, or machine person, with vastly better problem solving and management concerns, probably represents our biggest existential threat in the next century. Not because it might wipe us out or replace us, which is certainly possible, but because it might replace us as in control, and again not because it might seize control, which is certainly possible too, but because we might just tend to cede it more and more power. It's very hard to say no to a piece of technology that clearly does a better job especially when everyone benefits by doing so. Indeed, I'm not even sure that we should, and on many things we probably should not. In the century to come, our better machines, our better technologies, our better techniques, pose both our greatest challenges to survival, and our greatest tools for surviving and prospering. The real trick to surviving the next century is going to be deciding what we should employ, and what we really mean by survival and prosperity. So it's time for our SFIA Audiobook of the Month, and given that one of the best ways to survive the next century and the holiday season is with some good escapist fiction happy on another world, this month's Audiobook Award goes to Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, Book 4 of which, Rhythm of War, was recently released. I often get asked who my favorite author is, and across all genres of current active authors, it is Brandon Sanderson. He is a real talent in that he does not only incredible world-building, but magnificent characters, dialogue, and plot. He's written dozens of books, plenty to keep you entertained all winter long, and you can find all of his works over on Audible, and try your first book out for free by visiting the link in the episode description, audible.com slash Isaac, or text Isaac to 500 However, Audible has also recently launched a new introductory plan for those thinking of trying it out, or giving it as a gift, Audible Plus, for $4.95 a month for the first 6 months, and that comes with unlimited access to select audiobooks and Audible Originals, and they add more every week, so it is a very good way to get introduced to audiobooks, and if you're doing a lot of driving and travel this holiday season, or know someone who is, Audible Plus gives you or a loved one access to a massive treasure trove of fiction, as well as podcasts, wellness programs, theatrical performances, and more. If you're already an audiobook enthusiast, I'd recommend Audible Premium Plus Membership, which gives you a free audiobook every month, which more than pays for itself, and a 30% discount on additional titles, and you still get free access to everything on Audible Plus. Again, just visit the link in the episode description, audible.com/isaac, or text Isaac to 50500. So winter is coming, and as we move into the holiday season, we've got a busy month. Starting next week, we'll ask what it will take for colonies to grow from simple outposts into genuine settlements and cities. Then we'll follow that up with a look at how we'll terraform these new worlds. Then we'll ask how we go about getting to them in interstellar navigation. How we go about building up our own solar system into a Culture Two civilization. And finally we'll wrap the year up on December 31st with becoming Interstellar Species. If you want to learn when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe the channel. And if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website isaacarthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great century.